Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Hey, it's a big occasion. This actually happens to be our 50th episode. No shit. Do you have something special planned? Grow four extra arms, maybe get possessed by Dr. Octopus? Well, now that you've said it, no. That's not what I'm going to do. Did I spoil the surprise? You did a little bit. No, no, we don't need... Just... No, just take him outside. We don't need him. Guys, we have the arms. No, just take them away. They're, they're cardboard arms. But he was going to wear them the whole time. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, everybody. You have made this possible, and we appreciate it. And thanks to all the people who wrote these comics. Mainly, I want to thank Garth Ennis. And the listeners. Garth Ennis and the listeners. Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman, who, if he has heard our last episode, is a mighty good sport. (laughs) (laughs) That was a truly bizarre experience. And today we are dealing with Hellblazer 32 and 33 and sort of a bonus. Piece from Vertigo Secret Files, Hellblazer number one, which is a prose piece with illustrations. I thought this was kind of strange. Yeah, but we'll come to that when we come to it. First, let's jump into Hellblazer number 32, New Tricks. This is the first time we're seeing something we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the near future. This is an issue not written by Jamie Delano. It's written by Dick Foreman. It's worth noting that it says Jamie Delano and Dick Foreman on the cover. But not on the credits on the title page. So I'm not sure what Jamie Delano's role was. Art is by Steve Pugh, who we know from the Saint of Killers miniseries over on the Preacher side. Colors are by Tom Zuiko, and the cover is by Kent Williams. This is a face in a giant bulldog's mouth. Yep, it's a man's head in a dog's mouth. Pretty scary. Yeah, this is good. I think that, you know, dogs are one of the major food groups of horror that this <laughs> series hasn't really gotten into yet. Well, I guess we had the Norfolk thing, which was largely dog. Yes, yeah, that's... I almost talked about that, but... It had a lot of non-dog-like physiognomy. So jumping in on page one, we are immediately confronted with Steve Pugh's art. And this art has a lot more of a sketchy look than the last several issues. Everything looks grimy. Right on the first page, we have this hippie guy with his long, stringy, greasy hair and his unshaven face. Everything just looks a little bit bit gross. Yeah, and we're in a junkyard, and I think that Steve Pugh... Or maybe it's Tom Zuiko, the colorist, is sort of emphasizing that we're in a graveyard by doing a sort of pig pen-like aura around things. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it has a real grimy look to it. In this first panel, we are looking over the sprawled corpse of a man, and in the back we can kind of barely make out the reddish outline of a big scary dog. Yeah, this... Sort of long-haired, hippie-looking dude in coveralls is watching this guy get devoured by this dog. Right. This dog basically talks to the scraggly guy as if he were the dog. Oh, yes, you're a good boy, aren't you? As the scraggly guy has apparently brought him this corpse. Yeah, or a man that was turned into a corpse upon arrival. Yeah, and as a reward for bringing him this, he is told to get down and to crawl over next to the big scary dog, who offers him uh, some organs. Get it down, ya boy. 
The dog has a sort of weird-looking speech bubble. It has its own speech bubble style, where there's sort of like little thought bubble trails leading to a solid end point, rather than thought bubble trails leading to like a, a thought cloud. That's a good point. It's kind of like how Garfield's speech is always a thought cloud. Right. Unclear if the other characters can hear him. In this comic, it's pretty clear that people can hear this dog talk. Yeah, they can hear him, but he's given this weird type of speech bubble, which seems to be kind of striking a compromise between a speech bubble and a thought balloon. So from there, we cut to a couple of cute dogs in the park. Yeah. I guess it's a bus stop. Yeah, there's kind of a park next to the bus stop. It's a grassy area. These old ladies are gabbing about how people have been found eaten. Found it up on Lime Crescent, they did. They said all the brains had been sucked out of it. It's them videos I blame for it. Turn people into whatchamacallits. Psychopaths. I like that. Right. So the dogs are fighting, and one of them rolls over on its back and puts its legs in the air, and the fight immediately stops. Do you think that could be foreshadowing of some kind? I didn't think that it was. But having read this entire issue before, I now know that it is. Also visible at the bus stop, kind of behind the bus stop with his back to everybody else, is John Constantine. Right. He kind of goes from watching to having his back to everyone else, and then back again, I guess. So John wanders to this phone booth and calls up Tony Baxter for info. I don't think we know Tony Baxter, but this is him. Some kind of newspaper man, I think? Yeah, he's a cop or a newspaper man, and he tells John that all of the disappearances, or most of the disappearances, are Alkies from the local Simon house. That's apparently like a halfway house. Yeah, he also mentions that human bones were found buried in a playground. The next page finds John investigating the Simon house shelter. The fellow he's talking to says, There was a big police presence here for a while, but when they couldn't find enough blacks to crack down on, they lost interest. Again, a pretty cynical view on uh, police and law enforcement, reminiscent of the fear machine. Right, and sadly a pretty accurate view of what inner city policing looks like a lot of the time. This fellow goes on that old Drummond would have kept them at it. Now there was a man to be reckoned with. This Inspector Drummond apparently took an early retirement and then killed himself. Yeah, this is a bit convenient. (laughs) You mean that this guy knows Drummond by reputation? Yeah, that this Drummond guy happens to be introduced to us by, you know, random dialogue before he will become plot relevant. Mm, okay. He obviously made something of an impression on this neighborhood, and as we will see, he's not quite through with it. Oh, no, not at all. John points out that the plan is horrifying. You'd be surprised. Some of the borderline people stay away, but most of them are hard, John. Winos, junkies, speed freaks. You name it, they just don't care. There's a shelter for them, they come. And now and then one of them gets killed. Luck of the draw, just like that. Yep, it's still going on, and there's sod all being done about it. Till John Constantine turns up, eh? I've seen a lot of this lately. State of the nation, innit? Sickness breeding sickness. He thinks that this is probably a demon. Well, we'll see. On the next page, we find ourselves in a cafe... And a couple of uh, a couple of young women are saying that they're going to go and be in a shoot for a Napalm Death video that's going to be shot in a nearby junkyard. Napalm Death is a British metal band. There's a funny play on words here as the guy suggests that their music makes you deaf. Uh, Napalm Death? Yeah. That's 
funny. So a couple of lowlives in the cafe are talking about old Charlie and how he hasn't been seen in a while. A guy named Dougie says he's still working for him and he's all right. But they talk about how you can't trust Dougie. Right. Old Charlie Clutterbuck who runs the junkyard. But the neighbors blame Dougie for his disappearance. John hasn't said a word. He just has been listening to all this and heads out to investigate. Yeah, after asking directions to the place that they were talking about. Real subtle. (laughs) But I gotta say, I kind of enjoy this aspect of John just lurking in the background, picking up information and investigating the case almost in an off-screen way, almost as a background event, not being the focal point of any of these scenes. This is actually fun, and I kind of would have liked to see the issue focus more on this. Yeah, it's clever, both from a writing standpoint and from a character standpoint. So we cut to the junkyard. Dougie is talking to this guy, Mark. Now, Dougie is the scraggly-haired guy from the intro, and... He used to work for the guy who ran the junkyard, but now he works for this mean dog. Right. And he's talking to this guy, Mark, about Napalm Death renting the junkyard to shoot their video. (laughs) I worked for the junkyard owner, but then the dog ate him. Now I work for the dog. How does that... How does that work? (laughs) (laughs) How do you even... (laughs) I just wanted to explain that to the metal band's agent and have him go, Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mark is asking him about Charlie. Dougie's being evasive. Dougie is excited that the people shooting the video have apparently brought lots of women, including Tina Turner. I don't see Tina Turner. Here, Doug, Napalm Death wouldn't have Tina Turner in one of their... Doug? Where are you gone? Is this a joke or what? I'll thump your head in if it is. Yeah, so he's now wandering around the junkyard alone, and... We see him reflected in the red eye of a big old dog. Yeah... It's a pretty good, scary panel of the dog's eye there. So, Constantine is finding his way into the junkyard. Had to be a junkyard, just like Newcastle. Newcastle wasn't a junkyard at the time. Yeah, it was made a junkyard later. And he finds a book that says, My Story by W.S. Drummond. It kind of looks like it was written by a child. I have written down Party Shack, because he finds this shed full of Gasoline, pornography, and dog food. Okay. I guess Party Shack was mostly for the pornography. <laughs> That's someone's idea of a party. This is apparently where Dougie spends his shift when he's not working. Joker, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they have in common? They're cheap. <laughs> yeah, he gets to find out what happens with hungry dogs. <laughs> he's got gasoline, you know. He finds this book and he says, just what I needed, an illiterate's autobiography. So the next page is pretty much devoted to that. Yeah. And I wrote, worst page of a comic book ever. That's what's in my notes. Yeah, well, we do have some some imagery showing us what's going on as John reads Drummond's barely legible scrawling here. Yeah, and we are forced to as well. That's right. That's all the text we get. Basically... Drummond retired early because he felt he wasn't getting the promotions he deserved because he was a dumb brute and not a very good police officer. Rough. Then he found the incantations to conquer death. Uh, He killed himself, and then his soul tried to jump into another body, but he found that all humans were too strong and could repulse him, even babies. Even a tiny child in a pram seemed to have this defense. My time was running short, but I could feel the pull of the afterlife and must soon... 
Right, so I think we gather that he ended up in a dog anyway. The last panel on this page has John looking over as we hear a click, but I thought it said kill. <laughs> and it was just like John killed somebody with his eyes. <laughs> like, kill! <laughs> Got a kill screen coming up. <laughs> yeah, the click is Dougie coming in, and John says, Hello, sunshine. And Dougie is horrified that John's got the book, the book. Oi, I want a word with you. They have a fight very briefly. John asks what happened to Charlie Clutterbuck. He's been eaten. I like how when he's asking for Charlie Clutterbuck, he says, where's the governor? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's just a, a catch-all term for the guy that owns the place. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> where's your boss? Where's your governor? Right, Drummond ate the uh, the governor, and then this panel... Okay, this is, in my opinion, a fairly bad comics panel. No, it is. You've got the dog kind of standing in midair. Let's be clear here. This is not this is not the big dog of the title. This is not Drummond in dog form. This big old Doberman or Rottweiler comes jumping off of the roof of the shed, and Dougie is screaming, and John is going, Struth! But the dog is kind of floating in midair, and it's not really clear where he is in relation to the two figures. It's not even fully clear that he's intended to be in the same panel as them, because he's kind of outside the panel, too. And overlaps with the next one a little bit. So it's like, okay, is he like, is this just art of the dog that's placed here regardless of panel breaks? Is that what's happening? Or is he supposed to be in midair? Yeah, you're right. It's not super great. Yeah, and it looks kind of like he's about to land on Dougie here. But as we turn the page, he does not. He just lands kind of next to them. And that is when John realizes the problem is not a demon. It's a dog. Demons? My ass. It's the bloody dogs, isn't it? They are surrounded by all the dogs of this junkyard. Some kind of uncolored line art of Dougie hoofs it. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's not colored there. And from his sort of doghouse, Drummond, this giant bulldog that is now Drummond, addresses John. Arr! It's the Snooper, says the Snoopy. (laughs) (laughs) By way of explanation as to what happens to all the people who have been disappearing, he... Chuck's Mark's half-eaten body at him. Yeah, and we get a full page for this. There's blood dripping from Drummond's great, terrible dog jaws. And Mark, or is this Mark or Dougie? This is Mark. He's, Mark the roadie. Yeah, and he's like he, half-devoured with his hip bones, you know, completely bare of flesh, but his top half totally untouched. And lots of gore in between. And it's just a great, gory, horrible page. See? Dog meat. Did you find this too gross? Or is this, like, just lurid enough for this story? No, yeah, that works in the context. That's a a well-drawn page of of horrifying gore. That's what I thought, too. So, Constantine starts bantering with this dog. I'm amused by the fact that Drummond... Guys, the bulldog is Drummond. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry if we didn't... Set that up enough. <laughs> I'm amused by the fact that Drummond knows that John is stalling. Like, of all of the villains that John has faced, the one who's literally a big mean dog is the one who's able to figure out he's talking to buy himself time. I just want to point out, I realized while I was reading this page, Bulldog, Drummond, it's a fucking pun. You're going to have to explain the pun to me. Bulldog Drummond is a gentleman adventurer character created by H.C. McNeil. Oh, Okay, who's H.C. McNeil? 
He wrote a character named Bulldog from... <laughs> well, all right. I can put more in the show notes if there is more to it. But yeah, Dick Foreman set the whole story up around a subtle pun. The Bulldog's name is Drummond. Nice job, Dick. This is what writing is for. So John correctly guesses that Drummond has been making Dougie write his autobiography. Here Drummond makes Dougie bring him a cigarette, which he starts to smoke as a dog. If you think they look stupid, imagine how you'd look. Oh my god, that's a deep cut. <laughs> he's practically got tusks. Yeah, he's, he's just a big demonic dog. He's got bones sticking out at odd angles and his giant mouth. He starts to complain about how dogs have poor eyesight, but the richness, Constantine, the richness of smell and sound. And we get a couple of panels here of sort of dog vision, kind of blue and yellow grayscale, but with smells visually depicted. This is actually kind of cool, and I would have liked to see more of that. Yeah, that is pretty neat. He explains that dog politics was an easy thing to master. He had no problem becoming top dog by just attacking any of the other ones that gave him trouble, and he's amassed a huge following, and his plan is world domination. <laughs> you see, dogs have their own networks. They hear about us in distant barks, and they come to join us. Lovely bitches rear their pups to serve our cause. When there are enough of us, Constantine, there is a dog empire to be built. This is a pretty silly motivation, but okay. If you're going to do that accent, it should be more like built. Like, you don't really pronounce the L. Built. Built? Built. Okay. If I really want to sound like I'm in an adaptation of Charles Dickens. Right. I also thought that the cigarette would figure in Drummond's defeat, that his sense of smell would be muffled by his smoking or something, but no, it's just a, it's just a detail. There's just a dog smoking a cigarette. There's a pun about a, an adventurer, and there's a dog smoking a cigarette. John makes another pun here. You must have been a right dog's body when you were a copper, Drummond. God damn it. God damn you, John Constantine. John holds up this can of Tibby. I had been wondering what Tibby was when they found it in the party shed. It's dog food. Stick to this stuff, mate. They make it for you. Don't be a smart-ass, Constantine. Look around you. Look at me. Look at my dog elite. All right, there's dog elite. That's a worth a star right there. <laughs> We have tasted something, and it doesn't come in cans. So Drummond promises that if John throws the can, he will go after it first, and John might have a little bit of a head start before he gets eaten. He also promises that, given the chance, all the dogs of the world will turn on their masters under his leadership. Yeah, I don't know if that would work. Because our dog is so well-behaved at all times, <laughs> and loyal. No, just because this guy's nobody. This guy's a shit show. <laughs> Had a good thing going. Was going to have Napalm Death rent out his space. Fucked that up. Yeah. Tina Turner. Not anymore. She's on to bigger other things. <laughs> I don't know why that worked on me. Okay, so John throws the can. There's a big chase scene. This actually goes on for quite a number of pages. John hides in a car. Drummond is actually able to manipulate that door handle of the car and get into the car. All right, let's see you get out of it. Oh, shit, you have! <laughs> really on top of the situation there. I really like the art on page 246, where John is running and the dog's chasing him. There's a neat it's panel fun. of all the other dogs just, just watching the action. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. John keeps running. Drummond accuses him of being an abject terror. John says, I'm just doing it for the exercise, mate. And, I don't know, at some point... The suspense kind of goes out of this sequence. It seems like Drummond has the speed and physical power to be a match for Constantine, but Constantine just keeps fucking up and keeps holding on to the advantage anyway. 
Hmm. That's how I felt about it. Try reading it faster. <laughs> the dispense goes out of it too fast. Just try reading it faster. John gets to a shed and he grabs a can and coats himself in turpentine. Another friggin' coat down the tubes. There's also salt and pepper there. Drummond can also hear his heartbeat, so John turns on a radio, which is playing Hound Dog. <laughs> yeah. Just shameless. At this point, Drummond has John cornered, so John flops on the ground and turns Billy up. Oh my god, it's the silliest looking panel you've ever seen. <laughs> it's not exactly dignified, but it does work. You're pre-programmed, mate. So long as I do this, your instincts won't let you touch me. But of course, I'm not a dog, am I? So I can cheat. And with a huge shit-eating grin, he throws a bunch of pepper in Drummond's face. Ha! Ah chew! Ha chewy! Yeah, there's advantages to being human when you think about it. There's opposable thumbs for a start. And he grabs a pipe and starts wailing on Drummond. Yeah, we get some uh, animal cruelty here. Yeah? John points out that this makes him top dog, that the other dogs are now showing respect for him. I actually expected them to maybe turn on Drummond, but that doesn't happen. As we turn the page, John basically just beats him to death with the pipe. Yeah, and he says bullshit as he does, which is another pun on Bulldog. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's Bulldogs never give up, and then John replies bullshit. And that's that's the clever wordplay that we get on that page. As Drummond dies, he says, Ah, wonder uh, what I shall come back as next. I shouldn't bother if I were you, mate. Well, at least John knows that this guy is a minor foe. The dogs are all barking as Drummond's soul passes on to whatever's next. They seem to sense something, something ascending, and then it's gone. In the background here, we find Dougie crying, but we really get no more resolution on him. John is top dog, and he lets all the others out of the junkyard. Bloody dogs. Drummond was right about one thing. This bloody country has gone to them. Could be worse, though. At least dogs are stupid. There's some species I'd rather not think about. And we close on an aspect shot of some rats watching John leave the junkyard. Are they the species he'd rather not think about? Maybe he's thinking about humans, I'm not sure. I thought humans, but yeah, maybe this is meant to imply that the next time Dick Foreman comes in, he's got a story about rats, right? <laughs> Could be. Could be. <laughs> so, anyway, that is the end. That's the whole story. A little one-shot. So how did John Constantine get on this case? That was never really made clear, was it? I thought he was just investigating random stuff that he heard about. It seemed like, I don't know, I guess I assumed he had a reason for coming to town. Well, I guess I assumed and this was all just London. Well, coming to the neighborhood then, and for calling his buddy for, for a tip. Yeah, um, he, he didn't really display the Constantine procrastination here, and he certainly didn't get paid for this job. He got right on top of things. In fact, he ruined a coat, so he's in the red. Yeah, no, the first thing we hear him do... He's, he's at the bus stop hearing about the disappearances. Okay, he hears about the disappearances before he calls his buddy. Okay, so I guess maybe it's just that that puts him onto the case. Right. So what do you think of that one? You know, it was pretty dumb. <laughs> but, like I said, I, I think, you know, dogs are a good area of horror that we haven't seen yet. So that's a... If you're going to be doing something like this, like a Buffy or a Supernatural, you know... If they're just one of those stops you have to hit. Okay, so you felt like a dog story makes sense and it had some good scares in it. That's really all you wanted out of a one-shot. Yeah, some good scares, some good lurid <laughs> pages and, and gore and, you know, nasty 
dog creatures and stuff. Hmm. I'm sorry to say it felt like a, something of a waste of time to me. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, we read comic books. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that brings us to Hellblazer number 33. Sundays are different. Written by Jamie Delano. Art by Dean Motter and Mark Pennington. Colors are by Tom Zuiko. And the cover by Kent Williams. Here we have Constantine trying out for the Ginyu Force. <laughs> yeah, he's in a really weird pose here. My note says smelly skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's He's got one arm like shoved out to the side like he's trying to cover up the face of a child so they don't see something horrifying. And the other is either doing a victory, yeah, or just pinching his nose. I think he's pinching his nose and there's this skeleton in front of him. So it looked like to me like some reeds, although the reeds look like claws. And then behind him, there's a bunch of shadowy figures. I thought that was a rib cage. Oh, okay. Like he's looking at a corpse and doesn't want any of these random people to see that corpse. Right. He's like holding the crowd back while he investigates the smelly, smelly corpse. Is that something that has to do with the issue? Uh, no. Okay. No, no. No, we'll see. Starting out, we find John tired of watching TV. We get a little four-panel montage of John clicking through the channels. There's a news anchor, there's Tom and Jerry, there's Thatcher. Sometimes the interference gets unbearable. Sometimes you have to switch it off. But John wakes up the next morning feeling good, feeling clarity. There's a lot of purple prose here about his feelings, and it all kind of runs together, but... As he relates his feelings, he's using second person, which made it a little confusing sometimes, whether it was still him or, like, some kind of angry Claremontian narrator. <laughs> but he's talking about Sundays in the city and how Sundays are different. Right. He heads out into the city. He's he's seeing the positivity in the world. He's feeling good. Today is a holiday. Sunday. With a hyphen, so that it's a day of sun. And in the city, Sundays are different. And the R in the title is written in a big, kind of scary, bloody font. I'm not really sure why. Yeah, that's weird. Maybe because English people are afraid of ours. <laughs> well, it's... <laughs> they don't usually say them. Because they don't say hot ass. God, I'm so sorry, everybody. John goes to the news agent. The news agent thinks he's on drugs because he's happy. No, mate. Nothing so sordid. This is just genuine joie de vivre. What'll it be? Observer Sunday sport and 60 silk cut as usual? I don't think so. Not today. I'll just have a bag of apples. Well, the next page, John walks on... And there's one dark panel on this page. If you can shut all that corrosive dementia out, reduce it to background noise, choke it off, then why not do it? Sort of suggesting that the darkness in the world, the bitterness that John usually feels, is there. He's just suppressing it so he can have a good day. He's only happy by willful ignorance. And indeed, in the next panel, he says, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, he says, while you can still find it, you walk to Easy Town to mix in peaceful tolerance amongst the happy, smiling fools out playing on the hill. Maybe that's an older phrase, but it struck me as a reference to the Beatles song, Fool on the Hill. Oh, yeah? Okay. The folks he's walking past have definitely just stepped out of church. Oh, so he's saying that people who go to church are foolish. It wouldn't surprise me if he did. Even though he knows that religious stuff is real. He walks on, finds a park, watches some people having fun in the park. Here's an atmosphere you think you recognize from childhood, when once the sun invaded drawn curtains to dim the monochrome western prairies of the TV world into distant unreality. I just oh, thought man. that was some memorable purple prose. As he walks on, he's fondly recalling playing outside in the 50s, 
we saw something of John's childhood in Liverpool back in Hellblazer number 31, and we'll see a lot more of his adventures as a young boy in the upcoming Dead Boy's Heart story. All right. He considers briefly retiring, but it feels like a false promise. And that's when he runs into his old buddy, Martin Peters. A.K.A. Destructo Vermin Gobsmack. Now, Martin Peters has been briefly mentioned before. So we first met Destructo, a.k.a. Martin, a.k.a. Patrick McDonald is the name he's giving now, in Hellblazer Annual Number 1. And Dean Motter, who drew this issue, also drew the B story for that annual. He was basically a former punk musician who was trying to go straight and be a businessman. Yeah, or a punk music manager kind of a thing. Yeah, and as they mention here, John had given Destructo a music video for his group Mucus Membrane, which he was going to publish. By the way he gives his name to Constantine, I'm back under my real name now, Patrick McDonnell, feels more honest, you know? It seems kind of like he's emphasizing that that's his real name, or that John should treat that as his real name. Yeah, maybe John's never heard it before. Or maybe it's a new alias and he wants John to play along. Could be. So they talk a little bit about old times... We'd learn that John did, in fact, give Martin the music video, which was kind of ambiguous in his last appearance, and that nothing apparently ever came of it. Martin never ended up doing anything about it. We also find out that he was selling Nuke Buenos Aires sweatshirts on the street for money at one point, was his side hustle. Right, he spent the fairly short duration of the Falklands War selling anti-Argentinian propaganda in London. There's a panel here where John meets Martin's current either wife or girlfriend, Elise, and they have a look that caused me to write down, I really hope that they don't sleep together. They don't. No, they don't. Hello, lovely to meet you. That's the voice that I've given her. That won't bite us in the ass later, probably. <laughs> what? Having to do that voice. Oh, okay, okay. They mentioned that the 80s are all gone. No more 80s. I think this particular issue was published late in to 1990. Destructo and Elise are going out for lunch, so John invites himself along. Now he wants you to call him Patrick McDonald. I am going to call him Destructo Vermin Gobsmack at every opportunity. Yeah, that's fair. Destructo is obviously uncomfortable with this, but John basically says he has to come along to forgive him for not doing anything with the music video. Ignore my hesitance. It's just guilt, if I'm honest. They hop in the car. John's not supposed to smoke in the car and drops his cigarette. No, no, this is definitely a mysterious man dropping his cigarette. I don't know whose hand that is. And I don't think it's going to come back. It has to be John, but he's drawn as being outside the car. And John's speech bubble is inside the car, so I, I don't know what's happening there. Maybe it's an art error. Or maybe this is a different car. Maybe we're kind of seeing like a side view of just outside their car. And the speech bubble is meant to be pointing at John rather than at this other car. Hmm. Anyway, they get to lunch. Destructo and Elise are really big into the spinach souffle, and they order spinach souffle for everybody, uh, as well as a magnum of champagne. John says it doesn't really matter a lot to him because his taste buds are shot. We think it's vital to respect our bodies so they can carry us into the new age, don't we, Patrick? Well, it's a terrifically important asset. Really depends on what you want to use it for, though, doesn't it? Different fuels for different engines, like. Elise comments that they want to make a baby. John's kind of snarky about that. Then they talk about the fractal patterns and the chaos mathematics in the swirls on her cloak. Patrick says something interesting here. He's talking about all their new age ideas 
And he says that the 90s are just the 60s with maturity. Sounds attractive. Things are rarely that uh, simple. You think that's true about the 90s? No, not really. I don't think the 90s ended up being as idealistic as maybe he thought they were going to. You know, it was obviously a little early to make a characterization of them. Oh, yeah. I think the 80s were definitely thought of as a decade of greed. And so there was a hope. I mean, Martin obviously has a hope that... Excuse me. Destructo obviously has a hope that the ideals will come back, but employed more proactively, more productively. To a certain extent, we certainly got some sort of, like, anti-capitalist movements. We got a whole slacker culture that Mm. arose in reaction to the hyper-greed and competitiveness of the 80s. Uh, We got grunge music, which is also kind of about, you know, checking out of capitalist systems. But not necessarily with more maturity. No, yeah, maybe not. I wonder if the new maturity thing that he's talking about is just kind of his way of justifying that he made a bunch of money in the 80s. (laughs) You know, and so the more money makes him more mature. And now he's pretending to be more idealistic again because he's got all this money, but he wants to go back to his 60s sensibilities. I think it's definitely true that what they're saying about the decade and about culture in general is is very self-centered. It's really about them. They're yeah. trying to be idealistic again, and they're also more mature. They're older. Right. And, and they're in a position to be idealistic because, you know, they have the money to blow on spinach souffle and champagne for lunch. Right. They have creature comforts such as their fractal clothes and environmentally sustainable food. So they talk about Elise's boutique where she sells ethnic stuff, crystals, natural dyed clothes, earth colors. She thinks this is sort of doing good, and John just says, ecology is fashion, eh? I think we're kind of supposed to gather that it's out of character for John to be so calm about what is obviously bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, she also refers to it as ethnic stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did you catch that? Which just sort of shows how, you know superficial her whole attitude towards it is right anyway destructo's got a project he feels bad for all the dirty money he made in the 80s it turns out he did make a few grand off the mucous membrane video he claims he tried to find john to give him a cut and now he wants to spend his money making the world better yeah he wants to move people into ecological condos he doesn't describe it for a little while yet but basically he's starting an artist's community in ireland And he wants to pay back John by giving him basically a job there, having him live in the model home to promote the place. I guess that's why I thought it was condos, because he talks about a model home. Meanwhile, at the model home. (laughs) Right. John doesn't really care about what Martin owes him for the video. I didn't starve. It's a nice day. Forget it. Martin says that the cities are dying and the future is all about decentralization. Yeah, on the next page, he starts to describe how computers and satellites are decentralizing society. Now, the center of business doesn't have to be in a big city. It could be anywhere. He's actually remarkably prescient on this point. Right. He is describing the nascent internet before it really came fully into function. But obviously, the bones of it existed by 1990. Right. As Destructo goes on talking about his artist's community... John suddenly has a gut reaction, and it's probably not to Destructo's bullshit, although we could interpret it that way. Me bloody guts are in an uproar. Spinach souffle and champagne must be too rich for my, uh, 
proletarian tastes. John heads for the toilet, says that they'll reconnect. And as he's walking into this dark public men's room, he feels something incoming, something about to break the spell of his good day. Yeah, he passes a fortune-telling janitor with a turban and a mop. Who asks if he's here for the rave. He replies, I'll tell you later. John gets into the stall and sees all the writing on the walls of the bathroom stall, which starts swimming before his eyes. A yin and yang symbol turns into a pair of eyes staring at him, and the word turbulence keeps rearranging itself. Yeah, until it becomes... Center lube. <laughs> yep, that's what it says. <laughs> it also says it also says blue trance at some point, which is nice. <laughs> blue trance. I prefer the green trance, but whatever. John heads out of the stall. Nothing has changed. Everything is different. Yeah, and from now on, all the letters are rearranged. That's right. As he passes out of the gents' room, it now says Unseg. It's like he's suffering temporary aphasia. All the words are incomprehensible to him. Yeah, and when he speaks to other people, although his narration is still legible by us, when he speaks to other people, it's all rearranged, and their responses to him are rearranged. They slip one in here. Somebody tells him to fuck off, but the letters are rearranged, so they didn't have to censor it. <laughs> All right. Now, it's also worth mentioning that the way that the city is drawn has changed completely. The buildings loom up over him, curving over him, very scary. The entire scene is dark and gritty and gray. And this is when he starts talking about the interference again. Interference, a world between the states of change. I like that on this page the narration says, you conceptualize glibly. Yeah, John does that. <laughs> this, this is true. John is walking around trying to talk to somebody. He can't communicate. People mock him. You are hungry. You try to ask for food. Alaspi! Take a what? John wanders into an alley and sees some folks. One of them appears to be Freddie Mercury. And then you realize that they are more like you. And they are moving, patting in response to the persistent tattered beat. You follow them, blissfully unaware of having any choice. Oh yeah, I see him. Freddie Mercury, he's got, what is that, a keytar? Yeah. And he's got the, the mustache and the, the leather cap. So he's following these folks who are all carrying, looks like musical instruments and amps. Yeah, it looks like they've looted a music store. Or maybe they're going to the rave, I don't know. They start heading into this parking garage. These pages are all accompanied by crashing noises. Scash, cash, crang. No more crang. <laughs> There'd be no point in doing a podcast about Crank. <laughs> there'd, right, there'd be no point in talking about Crank on this podcast. John follows them, spiraling down unthinkingly. You are numbed by the commotion of this destructive industry. There's a horrified John face at the bottom of page 275, which is really weird. I guess he's kind of lit from a funny angle. Maybe he's horrified because he sees the pile of electronics on fire. This is why I thought maybe the destructive industry was looting. I don't know. Looting and then taking stuff through a hole in the wall in a parking garage to burn it. Oh, and here's the janitor again, but now he's dressed like Little Bo Peep. Yeah, he's still... <laughs> he's dressed much more mystically. Uh, he's still got the turban, but his mop is turned into like a sorcerer's staff kind of deal. And the janitor can speak to him comprehensibly. The sound seems inappropriate in this speechless place. John asks, What are they doing? Don't you know? 
They're deconstructing the monoliths, putting back what's been taken out. This deconstructing the monoliths, this was something that Destructo and his girlfriend had mentioned. They're apparently taking apart the city, one VCR at a time. John's still pretty clueless, but the janitor tells him he shouldn't be clueless. You're everywhere and nowhere, baby. You should know that. You are a magician, aren't you? You are a rider on the storm, one who turns his coat at will, who is not trapped by ignorance of possibility. I like a little earlier where he says, I don't understand. And the magician guy says, why should you? It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) That sums up this issue pretty good. He is on top of things. The janitor says that John is one who keeps the codes and passwords and the nerve to cross the secret borders as he chooses. And he gestures, and there's a big door of blue light that John heads through. John steps into the iPhone and finds himself in a pub. Yeah, at bar, people are still speaking incomprehensibly, although in what seems to be just exaggerated British slang. Here, all one word we've got, do you want to go to bed with me? (laughs) Do you want to go to bed with me? John again narrates, nothing has changed, everything is different. You push out into a babble of compressed lives, individual worlds thrust up against each other, then struggle through the frothy tide, wishing as usual you are somewhere far from this inanity. Somewhere you could rest, in quiet solitude and thought. John tries to order a gin and tonic. The first time he does, it comes out nonsense. He grabs the bartender. The bartender says, come on, pal, learn the language. Read my lips. I said gin and tonic. Straight away, sir. And then you sit and idly wonder where in all the world's futility is there that you would rather be. And slowly, the raucous chatter of your kind is drowned by the tiny susurrus of bubbles bursting endlessly. But then, this is a Sunday, and Sundays are different in the city. Funny old day, really. Yeah. So bubbles bursting, referring both to the champagne that they drank, the bubbly, but also the bubble of willful ignorance that John had to maintain to be ignorant of the world's problems, to have a good day, also breaking down. Right. Did something magic happen in this issue? I don't fucking know. I don't think he even dropped acid this time. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta say, I mean, the drug trip issues are probably the least useful issues to me. There's just nothing really to to talk about in this issue. I, I kind of see maybe what Delano was aiming for. I guess maybe he's trying to say that Constantine can only be happy by ignoring other people's misery, that he can't do it for long. He wants to stay connected, unlike the yuppies, unlike Destructo and Elise, so he anesthetizes himself with alcohol, but he can never fully give up the game. You know, he can never stay in the bubble of happy yuppiness that he was in at the beginning of the issue. And that's what happens when he gets all grim at the end. Well, fair enough. It seems like we could have done that in four pages and had it been, you know, the prelude to a story. Well, I'm not saying that this issue didn't, again, feel something to me like a waste of time. Yeah, it really felt like a filler, even though it was written by Jamie Delano. Felt like a guest piece. Okay, so this trade closes out with not quite another issue, but one more little bit. One more tale. Right. One more tale of John Constantine. This is The Gangster, the Whore, and the Magician from Vertigo Secret Files Hellblazer number one, printed in August 2000, ten years later. It's it was written by Jamie Delano and illustrated by Tim Bradstreet with colors by Patricia Mulvihill. So we open on Frank Buffo. He's the gangster. He's in a hot tub. He's fat, and he's covered with warts and blisters, which he believes to be the result of a curse by Constantine. His skin was colder, and the blisters that bubbled across its surface more pronounced each day. Yeah, and he's eating something with 
tough sacks that he pops gently against his gum. I think we do find out what he's eating, and I think it's gross, but I don't remember what it is at this point. So he is joined here by Sonya, who we understand to be the whore of the title. She arrives dressed as a nun. Yeah. And Sonya is a red-headed prostitute that Frank essentially keeps as a slave. She's an illegal immigrant from Bucharest whose passport he keeps locked away. We learn that he won her in a poker game in 1996, and he lets us know through his narration that although he's offered to free her in exchange for this job, he never really intends to do it. Frank Buffo, you're a sack of shit. Yeah. Sonya has just been on a mission to seduce certain things out of Constantine. One is a dirty secret that can be used to destroy him by Frank's black magic guy in Port-au-Prince. The other is some semen. (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, Hinted at now and then eventually revealed, she's supposed to get five bodily fluids, blood, sweat, urine, semen, and tears, and she has them in a Coke bottle, which she hands over, and Frank drinks them. Yeah, It's it's way worse than what she had to do, man. (laughs) Valid point. (laughs) This curse cure comes from Frank's enforcer, Crazy Baldhead Ron whose grandmother was Haitian and knew voodoo. This is the second time Jamie Delano has given us an off-screen Haitian character who happens to know voodoo. Well, yeah, but, I mean, just to... It does... I don't know why I'm defending Jamie Delano. (laughs) (laughs) It is maybe worth noting that this is, like you said, this was written ten years later. That's true. So it's the second time in, like, twelve years. Not the second time in, like, five issues. Yeah, that's a fair point. Sonya starts to tell the story of how she got this stuff from Constantine. He's, Fuck it. Well, that's how she got one of the things for damn sure. <laughs> More than one of them. It's where she got she got the blood, the sweat, and the semen from fucking. Okay, so it's an efficient procedure for obtaining and, bodily fluids. And the saliva, right? For obtaining PBFs. Yeah. Apparently, John Constantine likes to be cut because... Well, I don't know if he likes it, but it certainly happened. It, it happened. She cut him with glass during their during their interlude and it apparently didn't put him off of continuing the encounter so she found him living in this shithole old house that's falling apart and she showed up dressed as a nun he instantly recognized that she was not a real nun but he invited her in anyway there's sort of a moment of surprising vulnerability from john here she says something about how she's just one of the damned looking for company and he says okay i thought you might be here to hurt me kind of relieved that she's not one more murderer (laughs) right now, it's not really clear how old John Constantine is meant to be in this story. Generally speaking, he ages in real time. So 10 years after the last story would put him, you know, 40 going on 50. Right. But the art makes him look more like he's in his 20s or early 30s. So maybe this is a flashback. We're not totally sure where this fits into the timeline. Sonya makes a reference here. His hair is the color of straw pissed on by horses, like in the stable where the security police made the conscripts rape us. I really don't buy that line coming from her own internal monologue. Maybe she says it to Frank when she knows that she's speaking to a sadistic motherfucker, but I felt like it was just a really clumsy way of dropping in that bit of her history. Right. And that's how she ends up getting the tears, is with some more of her history. At one point she talks about the sky being UN helmet blue. Yeah, so she suggests this game of telling each other their sob stories and seeing who will cry, which John agrees to. I want to sicken him, but also to make him love me. Only the truth will do. And she tells the story of where she came from. Her home became a war zone. Her family tried to walk out of it. She felt a momentary thrill when a shell destroyed their house because she was free. She wouldn't have to spend her whole life there. 
The war had destroyed my life, but saved it, too. Frank interrupts. He thinks John is too cynical to cry at her sob story. She says maybe, but she wanted him to know and to forgive her. So as they're traveling on, Sonia's mother is killed by a mined outhouse. Some men in trucks open fire on them from a long way off and kill her aunt and her father. There's a great description of John's eyes here. Sharp yellow beaks glint at Constantine's eyes now as he picks the carrion meat from my life. Wow. She's got two small cousins that are either physically or psychologically unable to go on, and she leaves them and her infant sister, it's unclear if the baby is already dead, hiding under a bush and just walks away. I think one of them called out to me as I crossed the brow of the hill, but it could have been a fox barking, and I didn't look back. John, though, says crying is like pissing. He can't do it when he's being watched. That's one of the better lines in here. She says, narrating to Frank, that she would have to tell him what was at stake. If I hadn't told him what he wanted to know, I'd never have got those tears to complete the potion. Frank fails to understand the meaning of, I told him. He's unbelievably dumb. Yeah, and it basically turns out that Constantine never had him under any curse. Right. So, we should touch on this bit of business that's going on. Frank's feeling better after having drunk the potion, so he offers to buy her dinner while she finishes the story. She agrees, provided she gets her passport now. And he doesn't figure out what I told him meant <laughs> until they are already downstairs and she has the passport. Right, okay. And at this point, she knows that Frank is doomed, but she wants to stay and watch it happen, so she's not afraid of bald head Ron for the rest of her life. She told John that she was doing this to get the stuff for the cure for Frank's curse. And he laughed so hard he cried, and that's how she got the tears. Yes, indeed. So they arrive at this restaurant. Frank jumps out of the car. Sonia sees this sad-eyed homeless man standing around, and she offers Frank the rest of the story, but he doesn't want it. He just says, uh, referring to Constantine, Our soul's a fucking dead man as soon as I get run on a phone. Sonia takes off in the cab, and she hears two gunshots, but she does not look back. Yeah, the sleeping bag man killed Bufo. Right, so John had revealed to her his dark secret, which is that he got scared of Frank, and he lied to Sad Paul to save his own skin. So then we learn about the encounter between Constantine and Frank. Sad Paul is the guy in the sleeping bag? Yeah, Sad Paul is the sad-eyed homeless man. Okay. We so, don't know exactly what lie he told. Not yet. John comes back around to that. So basically he was on a bender in a club where Frank was eating, and John hated Frank because he'd heard that Frank did awful things to people, but also because he was fat and smelly. And he went up to him and he called him a toad. Bufo by name and Bufo by bloody nature. Frank didn't know that his name was Latin for toad. And Constantine's really not coming off well here. He started this whole thing by picking a fight with Frank over his being fat and eating in public. Like, Frank's an asshole who deserves to be punished, but not because John Constantine thinks he's unattractive. Right. Also, John, you smell terrible all the time. You routinely sleep in alleyways. It's not a bad point. He also says in his narration here, I'm smoking, but then I always am. So Baldhead Ron chased John off and apparently told Frank that he was under a hex. If only real magic was that simple. And John gets scared of Baldhead Ron. He's got a good speech here about physical violence. Now, a lot of things scare me. Most of them I can handle on a good day. But the thought of dumb, brute violence visited on my soft pink body always turns my ring to jelly. Too medieval. So John doesn't have any blackmail on Frank, so he'll have to find someone to get rid of him. Now, that brings us back to Sad Paul. Sad Paul is a homeless man whose son was murdered a few years ago. He bought a gun, and he's just been sitting around waiting for someone to tell him who the killer was. So John tells him it was Frank. John knows Frank didn't do it, but he might be culpable by neglect. Basically, someone in his organization might have had something to do with it. He does seem to be a major figure in London crime. I tell myself, 
But Sad Paul deserves some peace of mind, even if it is delusional. And he gives him a photo of Frank and tells him where he likes to eat. Now back in Sonya's story, John gives her the choice how much of that to tell Frank, although he points out they'll probably all die if Sad Paul doesn't get him. Smart lady. And then he sends her away, saying his old ghosts will soon be dropping by. We end on Sonya in the airport with her passport, deciding between New York and California. And she says, out loud, Old ghosts are to remind you who you were, and how you've lost your way. To her own surprise, she finds herself heading home. Funny old Laurel in it. She thinks she hears someone say, and she thinks she smells cigarette smoke. But that would be too much to hope for. So she's headed back to Bucharest. Seems that way, yeah. Okay, yeah, so what did you think of that story? Well, John's kind of awful in it, and I don't quite like the way that it treats its female character. No. The whore. (laughs) Well, yeah, at least she she has a name, although she's, of course, yet another person who sleeps with Constantine. Yep, which I think gives this episode its most Constantine moment. Somebody needs John Constantine's semen. (laughs) For a spell. <laughs> she is at least the viewpoint character for most of it. That's something. And it is something of an archetypal Hellblazer story. John gets out of this situation using wits instead of magic. Yeah, I mean, and we complain that we can complain that Sonya is like somewhere between a prostitute and a slave, but really the story treats her better than almost anyone else. <laughs> she at least gets an in-depth exploration of her motivations. Yeah, and John is not an admirable figure in this story. And Frank he's, is he's, hugely not uh, admirable. Oh, Frank, absolutely. But John is not a glamorous hero at all here. He's living in a shithole. He's burning it for fuel. He's burning pieces of the floor for heat. Right. And just generally an unimpressive fuck-up. And he gets out of the situation by some some fairly shitty manipulation of people. Here's what John Constantine thinks about your judgment of his lifestyle. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that if that period of John living rough coincides with something that we see in the comic and actually would allow us to place the story if we'd been reading it in 2000. Could be. Constantine moment. Yeah, I, I need a Constantine moment. Two people go into lunch that he barely knows, he's going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down for some free spinach souffle. Down for some free spinach and souffle and the bubbly. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That dog issue that you thought was filler probably ended up being the high point of this episode. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. At least it had some uh, some memorable dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) The dog was not the soul of wit, but he did have a dog elite guard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he had a dog elite guard. That's true. He made lots of dog puns. I gotta say that diving on the ground and going belly up is something of a desperation move. Well, it's like he knew it would work. He seemed very confident in it. Well, I, I hope so. He could certainly have been eaten if uh, Drummond's intelligence had overruled his dogly nature. I almost can't believe that no one's ever tried it before. It's a really silly panel. Oh, you know what else is a great moment in that story? Let's see you get out of that. Oh, shit, you have! <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> John's plan failed to work immediately. Well, we'll be back in our next Hellblazer episode for Dead Boy's Heart. But first, join us next week for a Preacher episode where we discuss A War in the Sun. See you there. Vertigais is written by Eric and I, performed by Eric and I. I produce the show, and Eric is on social media. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, 
vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, reach out to us on Twitter, at Vertiguys. You can reach me, at BlankCastSean. You can send us an email, vertiguys at gmail.com is the address. We'd love to answer listener questions. And also, don't forget to send us your input on Vertiguys Phase 2. Hellblazer, well, no, not Hellblazer, but Sandman and Preacher are quickly approaching their ends. And when they do, we're going to be jumping into a couple of other comic books. If you have any Vertigo titles you'd really like to hear recapped and reviewed, make sure you let us know about it. Whatever app you happen to be listening to your podcast on, it would really be helpful to us if you could leave us a positive rating or review. That'll really help people to find the show. Yeah, spread the word about Vertigo's. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> uh, the cover of fucking the cover of thirty three, man. Is that the one with the guy's head in the dog's mouth? No, he's doing this stupid pose. He's like crouching and he's got his hand off in one side and his other hand's going. What's he doing? I don't know what he's doing in there. I don't know what she's doing.